This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I recently read a piece written by the former Secretary of State and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. It was headlined, The Weaponization of Loneliness. She wrote it after an advisory published by America's top doctor, the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. I think there's certainly forces that today are exploiting the lack of connection, lack of understanding that people have of each other to turn us against one another. In it, Dr. Morthy was warning of a growing epidemic of loneliness and isolation, which he believes is destined not just to affect the physical and mental health of individuals, but that could end up being detrimental to democracy itself. As life and circumstance and society and technology all changed, it's taken a toll on our social connection. We have to very intentionally rebuild that today. This week, I speak to Dr. Morthy about his own experiences with loneliness and how it affected his ability to be the nation's doctor. We also look at why he thinks political leaders of all stripes need to take this threat more seriously. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. You know, how one becomes Surgeon General is, um, I will say, even having served in this job twice, uh, it's a bit of a mystery uh, to me still. I don't think there's any clear path to doing it. It wasn't a job that I necessarily sought out or thought I would do when I was uh, growing up, when I was going through medical training. Uh, But I was approached by uh, President Obama's team uh, back in 2013 about serving in the role. They were looking to modernize the office of the Surgeon General. And I had a background that up until then hadn't really made sense to most people because it involved uh, practicing medicine, teaching medical students and residents, building a technology company uh, on the side, building a, a grassroots you know, advocacy program around health policy. It involved doing global health work as well uh, on air and HIV. It was all over the map, so to speak. But it turned out this is the one job where all those threads actually made sense and when they fit together. So that's how I ended up here. And in your day-to-day job, you're not seeing patients anymore. I mean, you're the nation's doctor, but you're not anybody individual's doctor. Because I think I wonder if some people think you might be the president's doctor. That's a different job, different person. But do you see any patients in your day-to-day life? So at this moment, I'm not seeing patients right now one-on-one like you would in a clinic uh, setting. Uh, my, my work is centered uh, more broadly on public health for the country. But I do miss uh, seeing patients, and I hope to get back to it soon. Uh, the president's doctor is a different person. Uh, that is, uh, I, I happen to know the president's doctor well. He's an uh, incredibly capable uh, human being, served in the army for many years, and uh, is a phenomenal doctor. 
So the thing that brought you and me together was this advisory you published in May, which got a lot of attention, warning that a growing epidemic of loneliness and isolation, in your words, threatens America's health and even the health of America's democracy. So I, I, I want to you know, dive into that and just start with what it is you've been seeing that led you to issue an advisory. And it's a big deal when the Surgeon General issues an advisory. So you, you must have been pretty alarmed by what you'd been seeing. I have been, uh, absolutely. And I know we don't normally think about loneliness and isolation as a health issue. And the truth is, I didn't either. I went through medical school, never really learning about loneliness. I saw patients for years and never took a course on isolation. But one thing I saw very clearly is from the moment I set foot in the hospital as a medical student, when I would sit down and talk to patients, I realized they were struggling with loneliness. Now, I didn't know what to do about that as a doctor, and I didn't really fully understand the health implications of loneliness. I thought it was just a bad feeling. But it was when I became Surgeon General that I began to dig into it, because as I traveled uh, around the United States and visited other countries as well, I realized that so many people I was talking to were, in fact, struggling with loneliness. They would use their own words for it. They would say things like, you know, I feel like if I disappear tomorrow, nobody would care. Or I feel I have nobody I can lean on during a time of crisis. Or I feel like I'm surrounded by all these people but nobody really knows me, and I can't be myself. And that's what made me dig into it, and that's when I realized that not only is loneliness extraordinarily common, in the U.S., one in two adults report measurable levels of loneliness, and the numbers are actually much higher among young people. But we also know that it's consequential, that when people are struggling with being socially disconnected from others, that it increases their risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide, but also raises their risk, surprisingly, of physical illness, increases their risk of uh, heart disease by 29%, of dementia by 50% among older adults, of premature death as well. So you put all of this together, and it stands out that loneliness is, in fact, a public health crisis. And it's why I issued this advisory. I wanted to call our country to attention and to action uh, to address what has become not just a critical public health concern, but a societal concern, because we've also seen that communities that are more connected, they tend to be more economically prosperous. They have lower rates of violence. Uh, they tend to be also more resilient in the face of adversity, like hurricanes or tornadoes. And I think that our loneliness and disconnection from one another puts all of that at risk and also makes us more likely uh, to be polarized and divided, which is unfortunately all too common these days. And wholly relevant for us, because that links to the politics of a country, and this show, is, uh, its main focus is, is on US politics. But just on that first point, of the, the findings that in a way were less uh, intuitive, that less predictable, that there is a physical manifestation, that it is, as you say, it's not just a bad feeling, though that would be bad enough, but that actually can have implications for the health of somebody's heart, and you mentioned dementia and other things. How, how does that work? I mean, just being a layperson myself, how does there is there a medical link between that bad feeling and actually the operation of your physical vital organs? Yeah, it's such a great question. And from a scientific perspective, it's a fascinating one because it turns out that when we are lonely, our body is in a stress state. Go back for a moment in, in our heads to thousands of years ago when we were hunters and gatherers. During that time, we found safety in numbers. It was when we were together in trusted uh, groups that we were able to share our food supply and make sure that nobody starved, that we were able to take turns watching around the fire at night to make sure nobody was eaten by a predator, that we could help each other with childcare. We survived 
by being connected and relying on one another. So when we were separated from our group back in those days, our chances of survival dropped significantly, and we knew that. And so our body would enter into a state of hypervigilance. We wanted to, if even if there was a 1% chance that the twig that we heard crack behind us was a predator, we wanted to interpret it as a threat because our life could depend on it. That can be helpful in the short term if it motivates us to seek out a friend or to go see a family member. It's when it becomes chronic, when it's long-lasting, that's when we start to see the negative impacts of stress. And we see that across the board, whether it's stress from loneliness or from other causes, when it's either extreme in amount uh, or whether it's extended in duration, it can lead to greater levels of inflammation in our body, which can then damage tissues and blood vessels and increase our risk of heart disease and a host of other conditions. And, and you're not writing about this only as a detached physician. You've written publicly before that this is a feeling you know from the inside, and you've had some of your own experience. What can you tell us about that? Well, I have. I've had my own struggles with loneliness as a child and then as an adult in later years. And I'll tell you, as a kid, you know, I didn't want to go to school a lot because I, not because I wasn't, I was scared by teachers or exams. It's because I don't want to walk into the cafeteria one more time and, and be scared that there was nobody to sit next to. Uh, I, I didn't want to to be the person on the playground who just didn't have close friendships with other friends and other classmates and didn't know who to play with. Like, I didn't, I didn't like feeling that way. You know, I was a very shy kid. I was very introverted. So it took me a while to make friends. And in later years, I've actually had the chance to talk to classmates from back then. And they, they've all said to me, oh, wait, I was feeling that too, but I thought I was the only one. Hmm. And so from the outside, it can be very hard to tell who's struggling with loneliness. We've all become very good at putting masks on and, and making it seem to the outside world that everything is going great in our lives, whether that's by, based on how we talk and act or based on what we post on social media. But the truth is that there are a lot of people who are silently struggling. And I know that struggle. I've seen it up close. I've also felt the shame associated with loneliness. And that shame is real. It prevents people from asking for help and talking about what's going on in their lives. That childhood experience, I think, will strike a chord with a lot of people who had remember similar experiences. But you say you struggled with it even into adult life, too. I did. You know, there are times of transition when I was between jobs or not sure what I wanted to do with my career when I was feeling a bit lost. I, I grew, you know, grew up in a society that often told me, hey, if you're leaning too much on other people, then you're not being independent enough. You're not being strong enough. So I felt like I needed to figure it out sometimes all by myself. That was lonely. But even like more recently, you know, after my first stint as a surgeon general ended, I was sort of quickly taken away from the community of people that I had built at work. And I had made a critical mistake during my my time as surgeon general during the Obama administration, which is that I had uh, deprioritized a lot of my relationships with family and friends. So I didn't stay in touch with friends and I was distracted by email, by the news, by 50 other things when I was with my family. And so those weakened connections took a greater toll on me than I could have realized. I thought, oh, I have to choose between work and my relationships. But that was a false choice because what happened is by neglecting my relationships, I lost one of the most powerful sources of fuel that we all have in our lives, which is social connection. And I, it was, I think that contributed to my feeling burned out at work uh, in the long run. And I noticed something you've written, which is that those feelings are a kind of alert in the same way that hunger or thirst is, that just as we need food or water, we need social connection. It's a real human 
as it were, almost medical need. Yes, it is a human connection is just fun, a fundamental need that we all have as human beings. We may need more or less of it depending on our personality, our makeup, but we all need some of it in our lives. And I do think of loneliness like hunger or thirst. It's a natural signal that our body sends us when we are lacking something we need for survival. And if we respond in short order, the signal goes away and we are better off. It's when it persists that we do damage, just like with hunger or thirst. If you don't respond to thirst and you're dehydrated over time, you can impact your kidneys. If you don't respond to hunger and you, you can become malnutritioned over time, like things happen, bad things happen when we don't respond to natural signals that our body sends us. I just want to pick up on one thing you said a moment or two ago when you said you were growing up in a society that said if you're having these feelings, you know, you should be more resilient and deal with them. And it did make me wonder, reading the things you've said about loneliness, whether these are universal human things or whether America, which is the focus of our podcast, whether America has a particular problem with this. I don't think they're uniquely American, interestingly. I think that they're a feature of many modern societies. We know in the UK and Australia, uh, in Japan, these are all countries that are, are struggling with loneliness as well and have actually built national initiatives or appointed national leaders to focus on loneliness uh, and isolation. But I, the reason I say I think it's a facet of modern society is because there are things that have happened in the last several decades in our lives uh, that have profoundly affected our relationships. So, for example, we move around a lot more than we ever did. We leave the communities we were often raised in for jobs or for school. And this is where I think social media also is a, a, facet, a feature that we need to be cognizant of, because I think the title itself, social media, makes you believe, or, or hope at least, that the experience will actually create more social connection. And while I think there are some people who experience some of that on social media, what I worry about about kids in particular is that many of them are, I worry, being harmed. Uh, by their use of social media, that what's happening is it's substituting what used to be in-person interactions uh, for online interactions. It's substituting quality for uh, and now for for quantity. And you know, it's it's fine to have thousands of followers or contacts on social media, but what really matters is is there somebody who's going to be there for you in a crisis? Can you pick up the phone and talk to someone and share honestly about what you're going through? Can you do that for somebody else? Those are the kind of friendships and connections we need. We don't need thousands of them. We don't need hundreds of them. We don't even need tens of them. Sometimes we just need a few of those relationships in our life that can, that can make all the difference. I should say, well, you and I are both seeing each other now. You're in Washington, I'm in London, but via video, we can see each other. And that was actually a request, I think, that came from, from your end, because sometimes we do the, the podcast just hearing each other's voices. But I think you wanted to be able to see each other face to face. Tell me what you think that adds to social contact when people can see each other? And then again, in turn, what does a, a video encounter like this lack that an in-person encounter would bring? So think about it this way. Like when we communicate with someone, we're using systems that we have developed and evolved over thousands of years. And those systems tell us that in order for me to understand what you are saying, I have to listen to the content, to the words that are being spoken. But I'm also trying to understand the tone of your voice the cadence with which you're speaking. If you're suddenly speaking faster in a pressured way, I might think maybe you're upset or you're uncomfortable or you're, or you're agitated. I'm also though looking at your body language. I'm looking at your facial expressions. All of these things help inform for me what I'm hearing from you, what I'm understanding, and they're informing our interaction with one another. When the more you lose those different inputs, 
the harder interaction becomes. So one by one, as we lose those very rich components of communication, it becomes harder and harder for us to really connect with others. And the flip is that we can also do do harm in our interactions. If I can you hear me, uh, Vivek? Because we've your the image of you has frozen. Ironically, it was at just this point in our conversation that the internet cut out, and he and I were left disconnected, at least for a bit. Right. Can you hear right. us now? Ah, uh, yes, we can see you and hear you now. Good, we're back, we're back, we're back. Excellent. Isn't it funny that that happened just as you were talking about social connection? <laughs> and then we heard you saying, we've lost connection, and I thought, in more ways than one. <laughs> That's so true. In a profound way, we lost connection there. Um <laughs> I wanted to tie this to the politics because it's a connection you and others do make that if people are feeling lonely, there is an immediate connection to trust and trust obviously has a bearing on politics. So just talk me through how you feel this epidemic of loneliness, not only a bad thing for all the people who are going through it, but bad for American society and even American democracy. When you are feeling disconnected from other people, when you're chronically lonely, it leads you to be hypervigilant which means you're also more likely to perceive threats around you. And again, this is an evolutionary basis. I, I want to perceive things that even if there's only 1% chance that they're a threat, I want to perceive them as threats if my survival depends on it. But that hypervigilance does actually doesn't serve us well in the modern context. It can make us suspicious uh, when there isn't reason for suspicious. It can push people away from us even further. So loneliness can actually become a downward spiral. The other challenge with loneliness is that when we're disconnected from other people, it's a particular problem for, I believe, democracies, because for democracies to work well, we all have to be invested in each other. But the last issue, way in which I get concerned about loneliness having an impact on uh, our politics is around polarization, which is that when we are more divided from each other, it makes it easier for outside forces to come in and separate us and turn us against one another to try to bring a narrative in that blames somebody else for the problems in my life or vice versa if I don't really know them. So the absence of relationships is fundamentally a threat not only to the health of individuals, but the health of societies and democracies. And it's why I think it's such a timely and important issue for us to address now at a time where we have such high levels of division and polarization. Prompted by this exact warning, prompted by your advisory, uh, the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton wrote an essay in The Atlantic talking about the weaponization of loneliness, not just the polarization, suggesting there that there are forces there out there that in quite a deliberate way prey on the loneliness of those who are disconnected. So my question to you in a way is uh, what you've identified there is the risk, the danger that this could happen. But are you actually seeing not just the possibility, but the actuality of this happening in society? And do you think Hillary Clinton's right that there are people who are preying on this loneliness and using it? Well, I think there's certainly forces that today are exploiting the lack of connection, lack of understanding that people have of each other to turn us against one another. And what's worse is that because we are lonelier, it's more successful. Uh, these efforts are more successful at dividing us. You know, whether you're somebody who's worried about the polarization and, and, that's, and the toll it's taking right now in the country, or whether you're somebody who's thinking about how we address big issues like climate change and economic inequality that, we'll, that we need to address for the next 20 and 30 years, in all cases, you know, we need to be 
more connected as a society, more invested in one another. And that, that's why I think of this as this is not just a policy or programmatic crisis. The loneliness crisis is fundamentally a moral crisis. Uh, what we have lost uh, and what you lose in a moral crisis is your moral compass. There are so many Americans I meet who are telling me that they say, you know, Vivek, it feels like it's become more important to be right than to be compassionate, more important to be powerful than to be just, and more important to be successful than to be kind. And that's why I think we've got to recenter around some of these core values of kindness, of generosity, of service and friendship. If we do that, we can truly build individual lives, families, communities, and a nation that's strong and resilient. Now, I know you speak as a medic rather than a politician, but do you, those ex sentiments you express there about, you know, more emphasis on power than doing what's right and so on, are you seeing that from both sides of, of the political argument in the country? Or are you seeing that, as Hillary Clinton was, coming from one side, which is the right? When I talk to people around the country, they're often speaking about what they see in our politics as a whole, what they see in the coverage of our politics and what they see on, in terms of their interactions with others on social media. Our dialogue has become more coarse, that it seems like we are more mean, that we care less about one another, we care more about advancing ourselves. It does not mean that there aren't instances and examples of people operating from a very different set of values, from kindness and from generosity, from a service orientation. Those examples, though, just don't get much oxygen. They don't get a lot of coverage. They're not talked about as much by our elected leaders. Like it, You just don't see a, a lot of light being shined on what is going right. And so we think that we are getting meaner. The coverage seems to indicate that as well. People seem to operate out of that basis, feeling like, hey, if no one else is, everyone else is going to look out for themselves, maybe that's what I should be doing too. We start to question our instinct to be kind to one another, thinking maybe we're going to be uh, you know, taken advantage of. So we need to anchor ourselves back in, in an identity. Changing the, this, you know, that direction, you know, moving the ship, so to speak, is going to take all of us recommitting to those core values, especially our leaders, uh, who I think have an even greater responsibility uh, to operate uh, from that core set of values. So you've set out there in a way where the ship should be headed. Mm -hmm. Just give us two or three, maybe even how people behave as individuals, but also what could happen at the policy level, things that people could do to right the ship and have it sailing in the right direction towards a place you've set out that is about kindness and connection. Government can actually look at its policies and ask, how do these actually impact social connection, the strength of community, whether it's housing policies, transportation policies, the amount that we invest or don't invest in uh, studying the impact of social connection on our lives and the, the pathway to rebuilding social connection. But there's also thing, are important steps a private sector can take. Community organizations can invest in programs that actually bring people together across differences to build understanding. We can do that in our workplaces, that is our office actually has been working to do within our own uh, workforce. We can do that in our schools, trying to teach kids the basic skills for social and emotional learning so that they understand how to build healthy relationships from day one. And all of us can start in our personal lives by making time for other people. If that could be five minutes a day that we make to spend time reaching out to someone we care about, we can make it a point to be present with them when we're actually talking to them and not distracted by phones, which so often happens. We can carve out tech-free zones in our life, whether that's a time that we're having dinner with our family or the time we're hanging out with friends, or the call out of the blue from a friend who says, hey, I was just thinking about you. 
Just want to know how you're doing. These are small moments of service where we can rebuild our connections to one another. So all in all, the opportunities to build connection abound. What we have to do is be intentional about it. Our connection with each other has eroded over time, in part because we took it for granted that that would always be there. But as life and circumstance and society and technology all changed, it's taken a toll on our social connection. We have to very intentionally rebuild that today. We like to ask our guests on the podcast, uh, Surgeon General, a question, a what else question, something completely different. Although I now hear listening to you speak, think there is a bit of a connection here. There's been a fair bit of coverage about the former president, Jimmy Carter, who several months ago announced that he was going to hospice care. People assumed that he was probably in the last days, maximum weeks of his life. Instead, he's lived on for many months. They're celebrating a birthday in tiny Plains, Georgia, Jimmy Carter's birthplace 99 years ago today. There was an account there saying that he still watches ball games and eats his favorite peanut butter ice cream and <laughs> talks to people. I wonder, you know, about end of life and what lesson uh, perhaps Jimmy Carter is teaching his country and the rest of the world by having this kind of end of life. I think from a life perspective, there's a lot, especially in recent years, that uh, President Carter has uh, been able to teach the country. His life is also grounded in family and in friendships. We are not, as doctors, always very good at predicting how long someone is going to live because there are forces that go beyond the medicines you're giving them and the laboratory values that you're seeing that sometimes impact uh, someone's longevity. And I think Jimmy Carter is showing us that these forces can be very powerful in extending both the quality and the quantity of our life. Uh, you know, I certainly wish him well. I, I, I'm grateful to him and to his family for sharing his journey with all of us. And Dr. Vivek Murthy, we are grateful to you, Surgeon General of the United States, for speaking to us for Politics Weekly America. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, Jonathan. And that is all from me for this week. Before I go, I wanted to point you in the direction of my colleagues on The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly podcast. As the WSL gets into full swing, join the hosts Faye Carruthers and Susie Rack every Tuesday as they break down the latest news from the best leagues in the world. Whether you're a seasoned pro or new to the women's game, they'll have the best analysis to get you up to speed. Just search for The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer was Danielle Stevens, and the executive producer this week was Max Sanderson. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.